Friends, good afternoon. And uh, thank you, uh, June Patricia, for the invitation to make a contribution to this <coughs> important conversation. My first encounter with the British schooling system was in this city. It is 1965. I am at Blackfriars of the Way there in St. Giles, a Dominican friar studying theology at this university. I join an organization quaintly called the Oxford Committee for Racial Integration, if you please. It would now be, I suppose, the Oxford Racial Equality Council or some such thing. And in that capacity, I am made the chair of the Education Subcommittee, a subcommittee that was asked to deal with a whole series of issues that Caribbean parents principally and their children were facing in the Oxford schooling system. Those of you old enough would remember that there used to be a huge car plant up the way there in Cowley, making Austin and Morris cars. The men typically worked in that car plant. The women worked at the Churchill or Radcliffe hospitals. The children went to Oxford schools and were pretty shabbily treated principally because the schools did not understand or for that matter wanted to understand them, expected them to fit in and to know everything about Britain, but took no responsibility for knowing anything at all from where those children had come from, irrespective of the interface between British history, empire, and the colonies, former colonies, from which those children had come. So I want to roll on from 19, middle, late 1960s to 2010. Where is this thing? And um, Okay, I'm going to talk about this briefly in the time that I have. And when I talk about generations betrayed, I'm not just talking about the generations of black children who've been here since the Second World War. I'm also talking particularly about white children who have been betrayed by a schooling system that failed to take account of the legacy of empire and what that meant in terms of its responsibility particularly in relation to white working class children in Britain's industrial centers within which many people from the Caribbean and elsewhere settled after the Second World War. And I want to begin with I want to begin with a quotation, come on. Okay. This is the quotation. Have a read. In 
In April 2010, Michael Gove, then Secretary of State for Edu Shadow Education Secretary, promised help for children from disadvantaged homes if the Conservatives won the general election. He told the Association of Teachers and Lecturers at the annual Easter conference in Manchester that the Conservatives will introduce Saturday morning classes for such children. Quotation, children who come from homes where parents don't have the resources to provide additional stretch and cultural experiences could benefit from being in school for longer. I believe he said there is a case for school on Saturday morning to help stretch children. My hunch is that families would prefer there to be longer hours. Parents would love to have school starting earlier and certainly love school to be going on later to fit in with their working lives. Michael Gove was right to acknowledge the part played by what he called additional stretch in determining schooling outcomes. Such additional inputs have become the norm for an ever-expanding section of the schooling population, with some parents, middle-class parents of course, paying up to 60 pounds per hour for after-school and weekend tuition for their children. However, he failed to acknowledge that the African heritage community had built a national Saturday supplementary school movement since the 1960s. Concerned about the miseducation of their children, African Caribbean parents and community groups established Saturday schools and ran Easter and summer schools with two principal objectives. One, to provide children with knowledge and guidance about themselves and their background to help, positive, help build positive identity and counteract the negative attitudes the society displayed towards them and encourage them to have towards themselves and people who looked like them. And two, to remedy the poor te teacher teaching and low expectations that were leading to educational failure for far too many of them year on year. A variation of this community-based provision in the form of mother tongue classes or and instruction about the tenets and tradition of belief systems such as Judaism, Hinduism, and Islam was to be found among other ethnic groups and faith communities across Britain. That movement, that supplementary school movement encompassed the following also. The struggle against the biological racism that was underpinning theories of racial superiority and the relationship between race and intelligence as propounded by Hans Isink, Arthur Jensen, Charles Murray, whom Nigel mentioned earlier, Philip Rushton, and latterly, bless his little cotton socks, James Watson. <laughs> Eminent scientist in retirement decided to rear his head and start joining that lot of biological racist rubbish. <laughs> it encompassed also the struggle for the recognition and valuing of Caribbean languages and to get schools to accept that the home languages spoken by Caribbean children were not extreme forms of the bastardization of the Queen's English by these colonized Africans, but languages in their own right. Whether you call them Patois or Creole or whatever, they were languages in their own right, languages that served the function for their carriers that English, French, Dutch, and German did 
and do for theirs. It encompassed the struggle against teachers who routinely indulged low expectations of black students based on racist stereotyping and a complete lack of awareness and understanding of the schooling and education culture from which those students came. I well remember how incensed many of us who taught in mainstream and supplementary schools were when in 1969 the very first all-party parliamentary select committee on race relations and immigration published the report entitled The Problem of Colored School Leavers thus casting the die for generations to come. What was the main thrust of that report? The basic thesis of, of I think in that lot was that higher scores of whites relative to blacks and aptitude tests explained by genetically determined differences in, in, in were explained by differences in intelligence and ability. That biological racism, as far as I'm concerned, fed into the perceptions that the states in policymaking had about Caribbean people and their educational aspirations. So that is what the select committee said in 1969. What was the source of these high aspirations? We had a life experience with Britain before coming to Britain. And of course, for people like my parents' generation, they came here in the middle 1950s. They had experienced ed education as a route to self-improvement, social transformation, especially for the children of the poor and dispossessed. Interestingly, even if Caribbean parents did have unrealistic aspirations for their children, what that 1969 Select Committee report did not say was what such parents had a right to expect from the British schooling system except to send scandalous numbers of their children to schools for the educationally subnormal. The institutional and systemic practices identified by Bernard Cord in his seminal paper, How the West Indian Child is Made Educationally Subnormal in the British Schooling System, Cord in 1971, are still very much at play today in the many adapted forms. So why is it that this history of self-organization by black and global majority people, and incidentally I use the term global majority because I have a detestation for the term ethnic minority. Now you may have all kinds of ideological and other problems with the, the notion of global majority in identifying people from the Caribbean, from the African continent, from the Indian subcontinent, China, etc. I don't. For one thing, it makes me feel better in my guts to talk about global majority rather than black and ethnic minority. So, why is it that that history of self-organization on the question of schooling and tackling underachievement did not even get a mention from Mr. Gove when he made his 20, April 2010 announcement and has not been acknowledged since despite the tens of thousands of school students whose life chances have been preserved and extended by committed teachers in the supplementary and Saturday school movement.
Maybe it is because our contribution to shaping schooling and education in the last 50 years has largely been written out of the social history of Britain to the extent that governments during that period, no less than schools themselves, have acted as if they had or still have nothing to learn from what our experience was saying about the British schooling system and from the way we took responsibility across the land for rescuing our children from its worst effects. One of the many messages we've been at pains to convey to the education establishment is that getting good exam re results, getting good exam grades, is not the sole purpose of schooling and education. And we may do well to remember Mark Twain's famous statement, I have never let my schooling interfere with my education. <laughs> Another is that decades of anti-racist teacher education appear to, appears to have done little to eliminate the discrimination suffered by black and white working class students as a result of teachers' low expectations based on race and class. A third is the correlation between teachers' low expectations, the low expectations too many students have of themselves, and the anti-learning culture that has resulted from that, poor student behavior, a mix that accounts in part for the large number of exclusions among African-Caribbean boys. Those boys are three to five times more likely to be excluded from school than their white counterparts, 10 times more likely to be the subject of what's euphemistically called managed moves. Roughly the same number of mixed African-Caribbean boys, mixed African-Caribbean and English white boys of that parentage are permanently excluded as black Caribbean boys from maintained schools. Slightly more black Caribbean boys are permanently excluded from these academies. Many of those students are excluded from nothing more than attending school with their hair cut too short for the school's liking. Up and down the land, schools operate uniform policies which debar black children from cropping their hair short because those schools do not allow white students to have short cropped hair as, in their view, that is a sign of allegiance to skinhead gangs. In order to demonstrate that they treat all children equally by treating them all the same, black children are equally prevented from coming to school with their hair cut short. I chair an organization called the Communities Empowerment Network. We've been operating for the last 13 years. We deal with just under 1,000 exclusion cases per year. And in the last week, I've been dealing with three exclusion cases where young, bright, well-presented black boys just about to do their GCSEs were sent home because they, ha they had their hair cropped as short as mine. Now, I don't know when last any school has seen gangs of skinheads doing anything to anybody. But they have this archaic, useless, stupid rule, and they're using it not just to harass white working class kids, but black kids as well. The trouble is that white parents are simply sitting, there, sitting down and, and accepting it. And when the likes of me and my organization get up and tell these schools that we take you to judicial review, if you don't stop this nonsense, they decide that we're anti-establishment, and long may it be so. <laughs> 
All right. Um, I don't have much time, and I want to tell you a lot, but let me just go, go to this thing here. We have some very worrying statistics to do with young black people in the land. That's one of them. Take a look at this. And I make that point, you see, because I have a concern that in addition to what is happening to black children of African Caribbean heritage, roughly the same sorts of statistics are emerging for mixed heritage children who have African Caribbean, one African Caribbean parent and one white parent. The picture is totally different for mixed heritage children who have one Asian parent and one white, one white parent. And I ask myself why. So there remains a strong correlation between these things. And despite the improvement that there has been with all of this stuff about raising <laughs> standards and improving school effectiveness, etc., yes, Thankfully, there has been some improvement. But that improvement doesn't register as far as a gap between the achievement of African Caribbean students and white students and other groups, not just white, Chinese, Indian, is concerned. Now, I don't believe that has anything at all to do with genetics. It's got nothing to do with the ability of certain races over others. But take a look at this. I've taken the figures from 2005 to 2008, just so that you see the pattern. So while there have been, as a result of these initiatives, the sort of improvement that you can see here, thank you, there is not any sign of that gap narrowing. This is the picture for girls. So these are the schooling outcomes for Africans in what I call the second diaspora, the diaspora from the Caribbean to, this part, to these parts, 200 years after the abolition of the trade in enslaved Africans. The only other group in the schooling system doing worse than African Caribbean boys in particular are gypsies and travelers. And there are no reliable statistics for them because they're typically itinerant and generally schools don't bother too much about tracking what's happening to them. So why am I concerned about this business of what's happening to mixed heritage kids? That's the reason. It's got serious implications. For, for those patterns of oppression and discrimination that have been visited upon African Caribbean people in the first place, and now the children of those who hook up with white partners. And of course, that plays itself out in higher education. I've got lots of other slides on that, but there's no time. This is an interesting, interesting statistic. 
And for me, having studied all of this stuff over, over a number of years, this seems to me to be the biggest challenge that higher education has. And we can see it playing out already in terms of what happens to black graduates, and particularly those from those post-1992 universities. The bar is, 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 is being placed higher and higher and higher in terms of their employability. And of course, this whole issue of students' fees and the rest of it in the last period is going to interfere with all of that as well. Before I come to this final slide, let me say this. Michael Gove, David Cameron, Theresa May could keep on imprisoning as many as they like. We already know that there is an overrepresentative number of African Caribbean males, particularly in the criminal justice system. And that's long before there was any concern or talk about gangs. I worked in Hansworth and Birmingham for the Runnymede Trust in 1968-69, started the first supplementary school in Birmingham while I was working there. And even then, we had serious issues to do with the way in which the police were criminalizing young black people. I went to Manchester in 1971, worked at the university there, and in the community of Mosside, and it was a similar picture. This book that's out there, about the 1981 um, uprisings. I was the chair of the Mossad Defense Committee after the 1981 uprisings. And this book is actually talking about the human rights abuses, the civil liberties abuses that took place before and after that summer of 1981. This book went to print a few hours before Mark Duggan was shot on the 4th of August, as synchronicity would have it, and came back from the printers while London was still burning. It deals with the way in which the state dealt with black young people before the summer of 1981 and since. And of course, it was no surprise to me, because I had said on, in the media and elsewhere that they could expect it. I didn't know it was going to happen so soon. So what we've, got to, what we've got to be concerned about is the way in which the schooling system, particularly now organized around this neoliberal agenda, where you privatize everything, you suggest that there is no place for the state in guaranteeing the defense of the most vulnerable of citizens, and you simply allow the market to take its course. The only regret that I have Having been active in this struggle, as I said, since the middle 1960s, is that too many black parents themselves are buying into that agenda and adopting this attitude of I, me, and myself, and the devil take the hindmost, rather than acting collectively to, to, to teach this government some lessons and to do something about the way in which the schooling system continues to marginalize our children. I've been working with young people in Tottenham and Hackney and particularly Lambeth since August. And the one thing I've been trying to say to them, and thankfully there were many of them grouping themselves around that particular narrative, 
is that in the same way that they managed to organize themselves using cyberspace and the media to do what they did on the streets, leading to over 2,000 of them adding to those in custody, they can think of how to use that same media in the self-organization so that the voices can be heard without having to burn the damn place down before somebody takes notice of them. And what I share with them in my sessions is this pledge that I had to make to myself in my secondary school because a mixture of racism and class prejudice against me as a poor boy coming from the country in Grenada was likely to cause me to top myself if I didn't learn to fight off the bullies physically, batter some of them to leave me alone, and not let their privileged class position assault and oppress me because I didn't know how to walk in shoes when I went to secondary school because I was too poor to wear shoes before I went to secondary school. And that is the pleasure I had to make to myself. And it is that that I want to see empowering every single one of our young people. God bless you.